Father, we thank you that you've revealed to us all that we need to know. And Lord, you've made your Holy Spirit available as our teacher. Lord, all we need to do is to be willing to hear and to do your word. Father, it's all so clear. It needs unravelling, but, but Lord, once unravelled, it's so clear. And Father, I pray that tonight that, that clarity will just be the watchword. Lord, that we will see so clearly what you've done for us in Jesus. <clears throat> so, Father, we pray that you'll anoint our time together now and that you'll really give us understanding of your word because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I wonder if there's a building that could turn the phone off so that it won't yeah. Right, well, we come to the eighth talk in the series that we're doing on salvation and tonight what we're going to do is is we're going to gather threads all right we're going to kind of pull together what we've done so far to start getting the whole picture now this means that i've got to go over very very quickly very briefly what it is we've covered so far and we saw that because adam and eve sinned and rebelled against god that the problem that faced mankind was this once Adam sinned man was separated from God on four different counts and I describe these four things as being electric fences that stood between man and God now each one is 10,000 foot high and it's got 20 million volts going through it it's unpassable man cannot get over it and you can't even get over any one electric fence let alone all four and we saw that the electric fences were these first of all I called the first one the sin nature that because men and women sinned against God they came into slavery to sin electric fence number one electric fence number two and three concern the nature of God and the nature of God is his holiness and his holiness broadly speaking is made up of two different facets it's his absolute righteousness and his absolute justice now the second electric fence is because of God's absolute righteousness and it's because we have personal sins and in order to have fellowship with a holy God our personal sins have to be dealt with the second the third electric fence was to do with God's justice that the penalty of sin death had to be paid and because God is just he can't he can't excuse us he had that penalty must be paid and then the fourth electric fence was that when Adam sinned his spirit died within him and the only way we can receive anything from God is through the spirit and from Adam onwards he passed on a dead unfunctioning spirit and that was the electric fence number four now we've seen that the death of Jesus knocked these electric fences down in regards to man being in slavery to sin we saw that Jesus gave his life as a ransom and that was for everyone that Jesus bought out of the slave market of sin anyone absolutely everyone who's ever lived and because Jesus paid the price all men are free to walk out of the slave market of sin now when Jesus died as a ransom to pay the price for our freedom that applies to everyone the whole world past present and future 
believers and unbelievers. But we saw that it's only when someone believes what Jesus has done and responds and actually walks out of the slave market of sin into his ownership that they become actually redeemed. So we saw that when Jesus died on the cross, the first electric fence of that slavery to sin was knocked down through redemption and ransom. Now then, secondly, personal sins, God's righteousness. Now it was a twofold problem. The fact that all of us have personal sins mean that we can't have fellowship with God. But it's more than that. Because the point is that in order to have fellowship with a holy and a righteous God, it's not enough to just have an absence of personal sins you've got to have the presence of absolute perfect righteousness the same as God's. And we saw that because of what Jesus did on the cross, when he died, he died as an atonement. And we saw that that meant covering. And the sins of the whole world were covered and dealt with by Jesus on the cross. And that applies to everyone. But all that means is our sins have gone. In order to have fellowship with God, we have to have absolute righteousness. And we saw that when we believe on Jesus, when we repent and believe on him as our Lord and Saviour, that then we are imputed the righteousness of Christ. So the second electric fence knocked down through atonement and imputation. We saw the penalty of sin. We saw how Jesus by dying in our place and remember we saw as well that it was more than just Jesus dying in our place we saw that everyone who has ever lived died in Jesus so that the penalty of sin was paid through the death of Jesus and we saw firstly that expiation that the penalty of sin was paid for everyone and that applies to everyone, unbelievers as well and also in the death of Jesus God's righteous demands of justice were fulfilled as well so Jesus died as a propitiation and again we saw that that applies to everyone but then the fourth problem was this that man's got a dead spirit and we can't receive anything from God except through our human spirits but the problem being, everyone has a dead human spirit. And we saw that when we believe on Jesus, we're born again. And our spirits are brought back to life so we can receive from Jesus. And we saw regeneration or the new birth. And that that happens when you believe in Jesus. So what we've seen thus far is this. That the barrier that stood between God and man as a result of Adam's sin has been demolished. Four electric fences all knocked down in the death of Jesus. Now they are gone and what we've seen is that where the barrier of those four electric fences that you couldn't get through, where that barrier once was, the moment that Jesus died it was all knocked down and Jesus stands in its place. But Jesus stands between man and God not as a barrier but as the door to the sheep an open door so what we've seen is that through the death of Jesus sin no longer separates anyone from God at all the problem in those unbelievers lives out there isn't their sin what separates them from God is that they don't believe in Jesus 
is that they haven't walked through that open door. So we've seen the sin problem was dealt with 100% by the death of Jesus. And where the barrier was, Jesus stands there as the door to the sheep. And the door is open for any to go through. All they need to do is to believe that the door is open and to believe in Jesus. Now, having summed up where we've come thus far, and if you haven't got those things, listen to the tapes. You'll need to listen to them maybe once or twice more, but to understand those things, get them into yourself, and if you haven't got the tapes, then we can arrange for you to have them. But bearing that in mind, turn now to Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, starting at verse 1, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, remember Jesus is an open door, so you go through a door. Through him, we have obtained access, and you go through a door, you obtain access to the room that leads you into. Through him, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Now, what I'm going to show you tonight is that when you put all these things together, redemption, ransom, atonement, imputation, expiation, propitiation, regeneration, when you put all those things together, you have what the Bible calls justification by faith. So therefore, Paul, having dealt with all these things in the first four chapters of Romans, concludes by saying, therefore, we are justified by faith. That is what it all means. Now, in the Greek, this word justified that Paul uses when he talks about being justified by faith, the Greek word for justification is dikaio. And what it means is to deem to be right, or to declare to be righteous. Along with many of the terms we've looked at, it's a legal term. And that is going to make more sense as I wind up what we're going to cover tonight. So we're going to see uh, a kind of a court case. Not Rumpole of the Bailey, but Jesus of the Third Heaven is, is exactly what we're going to end up with tonight. So what we've seen thus far is that to secure salvation, you have to be justified. God has to deem you to be right. Now, the area that I want to cover tonight in summing up where we've come thus far is this. is to show you that this thing, that in order to be saved, we have to be justified by God. We have to be deemed to be right. What I want to show you is that there are two possible alternatives. So that logically, there are two possible roads that you can go up in order to get justified. And I want to show you what the two roads are. And we'll see that one is right and one is wrong. Now, of the two possible alternatives, the first one is this. By the works of the law. Alright? By the works of the law. You're in Romans. Go back to chapter 2. We're going to be in Romans a lot. We're going to be in the rest of the Bible a lot. But we're going to be in Romans especially a lot tonight. And in Romans 2.13, Paul says this. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law 
who will be justified. Now what Paul is saying is if you do the law, you will be justified. You will be saved. Now we need to understand when the Bible uses this <coughs> phrase, works of the law, we've got to understand what it means. And what it means is this. It means to be justified by human effort. It's to be justified before God through what you do. Alright? Now, therefore, keep the law and you're justified. Keep the law and you're saved. Now, this was what the Jews believed at the time Jesus came to Israel. And the teaching that they were under was that by obeying the Ten Commandments they'd be saved. In actual fact it's not the Ten Commandments but by obeying the 613 commandments because 613 commandments were given to Israel through Moses. Uh, the first ten were written by the finger of God. All right, Jesus wrote the first ten, Moses wrote the rest. All right, But there were 613 and they believed that because they were keeping the commandments that by obeying the law of Moses that they were therefore saved. Now this in fact was Israel's greatest misunderstanding and the reason it was <clears throat> is this you see they were saying that we're obeying the law and because of that we're justified we're saved but what I'm going to show you is that that is not why God gave the law God didn't give the law in order for them to obey it and be justified now, see, I'm saying that that's not why God gave the law, so what we've got to do is to find out why did God give the law then? If he didn't give it so that by obeying it they'd be saved, why on earth did he give them the law so that they could end up misunderstanding it? Now, go into Romans 3, right? And I'm going to read, first of all, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now go to verse 23. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now what Paul is saying here, the law was not given so that by obeying it you could be saved, the law was given to reveal that sin was present. It was only because Israel had the law that they could know that they couldn't live up to it and therefore were sinners. Think of it like this, the law was the straight to show Israel that they were bent. Can you see what I'm saying? Now that is why they had the law. It wasn't there to be obeyed. The law was there to show them that they couldn't obey the law and were therefore sinners. Alright. Now then, this showed Israel very clearly that justification therefore couldn't be by the law. Because that's not why the law was given. The law was given to show them that they couldn't obey it. So justification before God had to be by some other means. 
Now, there's one other thing that we've got to go on to here. Because we're talking about the works of the law. But the law was only given to Israel. So, what about the Gentiles? This is important. Now, go with me back into Romans to chapter 2 and the first three verses. <clears throat> Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that when you judge those who do such things, yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Now verse 12, For all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And then go to verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. Now then, we've got to understand this. You see, the thing is that what Paul is saying is that Israel have no excuse for believing that they could be saved by obeying the law. Because he says, the law has been given to you, you can't obey it, you're kidding yourselves that you think that you are, and all that's happened is the law has shown you that you were sinners. Therefore, they knew that they need justification by some other means than what they do. But the law was only given to Israel, so what about the Gentiles? They weren't given the law. Now then, what we need to understand is this, that Gentiles in the time before Jesus did not need the law of Moses in order to know that they were sinners. And indeed today, men and women do not need the Bible or to hear Christian preaching to know that they're sinners. Now, let me explain this. It's very, very important. Romans 1 and 2 of uh, chapters that are avoided. I think they're avoided because people don't know what they mean. So when you get a kind of a Bible, so if, if someone does a series on Romans, it opens with Romans 1 verses 1 to 17, alright? And then it picks up again at Romans chapter 3, alright? Because now it's very simple what it's saying. Now, I've covered this with you before here on certain occasions. In Romans 1 and 2, Paul argues this. He argues the three things that everyone can know. Without the Bible, without Christian preaching, without the law of Moses, three things that every rational human being can know. And the first one is this. They can know that there is a God. And they can know that there is a God because there is a creation. If there's a creation, the Creator put it there. And the alternative to there being God is that millions of years ago, nothing turned into something all on its own. Now, therefore, the mere fact that we live in a creation shows us clearly that there is a Creator. But the second thing that Paul argues is this. It's more than that. We can actually know that he's a personal Creator, and we can know that he's a holy Creator. Now, how do we know that? Well, firstly, we're personal. We're personal. 
And every human being has always lived as if they are a personal individual. So personality is built into us in the creation. Therefore, personality had to come from the fact that the creator is personal. But it's more than that because we can know that this personal creator is holy. Scratch, scratch. How can we know that if people don't preach it to us? Well, for this reason. You see, throughout history, Paul argues, every man and woman who has ever lived believes in right and wrong. You'll get disagreements over what things people believe are right and what things people believe are wrong. But every human being throughout history has had a moral code that is important to them. Even people that you might look at and say they're desperately wrong in what they're doing, the point is they have what they believe is right or wrong. So therefore, what Paul is saying, that because the whole human race believes in a moral code in the universe, where did this right and wrong come from? It must have come from the fact that God himself is good. And therefore, this kind of tension between good and evil is because the nature of God himself is holy. So therefore, what Paul is arguing, that the Gentiles, in this sense, do indeed have the law. It's written on their hearts. Now, how can I demonstrate this point clearly? The way that I tend to put it is like this. Picture that when you're born, God plants an angelic bug on you, alright? So he's got you bugged. And this bug is kind of, you know, there's a little tape recorder in heaven, and it's recording you. Now what happens is, throughout your life, every time you make a moral decision, by which I mean every time you condemn someone, the tape recorder runs. So every time you think in your heart, that was wrong what he did, the tape recorder runs. Every time you say to someone, that was wrong what you did, the tape recorder runs. Every time you criticise somebody, the tape recorder recalls what you think they ought to be criticised for. Now, picture that a Gentile dies and he stands before God and God says, I ain't going to let you in. And he says, you've got to let me in. I didn't hear, no one preached to me. And God will reiterate Romans 1 and 2. Alright? But when he gets this thing about the sinner, the bloke will say, alright, I accept that I should have known you were there and I should have known you were holy. But how on earth can I know that I'm a sinner? I didn't have your law. And then God will play back the tape recorder. And every moral decision, everything he condemns people for, will come out of the tape recorder. And God will turn to him and he'll say, now then, that's your Ten Commandments, isn't it? And he'll have to admit that it is. And God will say, did you keep your Ten Commandments? And he'll have to say no. He'll have to admit that time and time again, he did the same wrong things that he condemned others for doing. So therefore, the Gentiles as well knew, had full knowledge, that by works of the law, their efforts, what they did, could never be a means of justifying them before God. Now, this whole attempt of man trying to be justified by the works of the law is what I call religion. And religion is salvation by works. When we talk about works of the law, salvation by works is what we're talking about. Trying to be good. This idea that God's going to let me into heaven because I do good things and because I try very hard. 
and because I'm on a self-improvement course. This belief that God is going to let them into heaven because of what they are doing. Now then, you remember earlier on in the course, we saw a classic case of religion. And we saw it in the first people who ever sinned, Adam and Eve. Now what happened? They fell into sin and suddenly realised that they're naked. Alright? Now, immediately they know that something's wrong. Alright? So what do they do? When out comes the needle and thread, and out come the fig leaves. So, a quick bit of sewing, and a little bit of discreet covering, okay? And of course, there they are, they're quite happy that they have covered, they have dealt with the problem of their sin. But isn't it interesting, they've got their fig leaves on, but as soon as they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden calling to them, they run and hide. Now why do they do that? The point is this, when Jesus wasn't there in front of them, their own efforts were fine, they thought they were great. But once Jesus, in all his glory and holiness, confronted them, they automatically knew that their efforts were of no avail whatsoever. And everyone who's into salvation by works are going to get this rude awakening when eventually they stand before God. Now then, go with me to Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians chapter 3, and find verse 10, where we read this. Remember, we're looking at the first possible alternative by the works of the law, by human effort, what you do. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now here's the thing. Salvation by works, the works of the law, put you under God's curse. And the reason they do are this. Works of the law are all to do with pride and self-righteousness. Now, in order to show you, I mean, Jesus feels strongly about all sin. All sin is bad. But to bring the point home that I want to make to you, when Jesus met women who were immoral and caught in adultery, he was so gentle with them. But when Jesus was confronted with people who were proud and self-righteous, he went for them. Because pride and self-righteousness are the final abominations to God. They are literally the worst sins. I'm not now saying that some sin is alright, but I'm saying that pride and self-righteousness get God going in a way that immorality doesn't. <coughs> you see, it's abominable to God and therefore puts you under God's curse. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law. So then, we've asked the first alternative, justified, put right before God by the works of the law, by human effort, by what you do. And we have seen that that cannot be done. Therefore, there must be another way. And the only other way is this. We've seen way number one by the works of the law, by human efforts, by what you do. 
Now the other alternative is that we're justified by the work of the Lord or by God's effort, by what he has done. Now then, the second part of verse 11. For he who through faith is righteous shall live. So Paul, having knocked down once and for all any idea that you can be justified through the works of the law, says, but you can be justified by the work of the Lord, by faith in Jesus. And let me give you Christianity in five words. I love it when you get something down to the real bones. Christianity in five words. You can't, but he can. Now that is what Christianity is. Justification, salvation, is believing that Jesus has already done it for us. It's not thinking I can do something to get it. It's realizing that you can't and that Jesus through the death of the cross and the demolition of the four electric fences it's believing he already has done it and that you simply walk through that door. Simply trusting Jesus as your saviour or the term I used earlier in the course I don't like saviour it's jargon the modern translation of that word saviour is rescuer simply accepting that Jesus has rescued you and walking through that door mm. now then what we have seen is quite simply this the law was given not to save anyone the law was given purely to reveal sin purely to show people that they needed saving in the first place now let's sum up what we've covered so far Galatians chapter 2 and read verse 15 Galatians chapter 2 and verse 15 we ourselves who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners yet who know that man is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by works of the law shall no one be justified so works of the law no way but by the work of the Lord by faith in Jesus now at this point we've got to understand something because if we don't understand this, we're not going to understand some 40 or 50% of the New Testament. And it's this. We've got to see the problem that Paul had with getting this teaching across to Israelites, to Jews. You see, this was the problem. They maintained that what they were hearing was a new doctrine. They maintained that what they were hearing, this salvation by faith, was some strange teaching that was incompatible with the Old Testament. And the kind of the picture that the Jews had, when the Christian gospel went out, the picture that the Jews got was this. It was kind of the picture that God's first attempt at salvation failed, so then he had to come up with a second kind of try, a second bite of the cherry. I.e., they got the picture that the Christians were saying that God's first attempt, that he blew it with the law. And because God blew it with the law, 
that therefore the Christians were saying that he came up with the last result and the last result was Jesus and faith. Now this is what the Jews thought the Christians were preaching. So therefore what Paul has to do quite simply is this. You see if the Jews, if what they felt about what the Christians were saying, if it was correct then the Jews were right and the Christians were wrong. So what Paul has to do is quite simply this. He has to demonstrate to the Jews that this new teaching of justification by faith rather than by works was in the Old Testament all the time. Paul had to show them that it was the same teaching that had always been in the Old Testament. Now there are a couple of ways I want to show you that he did this and the first way is this if you go back to Romans and chapter 1 remember what Paul has got to do is that he's got to demonstrate to the Jews that this salvation by faith was always God's intention there's nothing contradictory it wasn't that God wanted to save them through the law but then that blew it and so he came up with faith at a later date Paul has to demonstrate that the Jewish faith in the Old Testament taught justification by faith now then Romans 1 verse 17 for in it and this is the verse upon which Paul bases the whole of Romans the book of Romans is a systematic treatise of the Christian faith and this is the hinge verse for in it the righteousness of, it, of God is revealed through faith for faith for as it is written he who through faith is righteous shall live or alternatively the righteous shall live by faith now Paul bases his entire Christian gospel on that verse which came from Habakkuk it came from the Old Testament and Paul is demonstrating look this idea about being justified by faith is not new it's there staring you out of God's book staring you out of the Old Testament now there's another way that he does it in Romans and this is even more clever because remember the Jews were saying that salvation is by the law and Paul's saying no it was never meant to be now what he does now is he demonstrates to them that not only does the Old Testament teach that salvation is by faith but he now demonstrates to them that the Old Testament taught that salvation was by faith before Moses ever lived and the law was ever given now this would make it absolutely conclusive turn to Romans chapter 4 and of course what Paul does he gives the example of Abraham and in Romans 4 and I'm going to read the first three verses what shall we say about Abraham our forefather according to the flesh remember what Paul is saying he's proving to the Jews that the Old Testament always taught salvation by faith and it was teaching that before the law ever came what shall we say then about Abraham for if Abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before God for what does the scriptures say Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness now Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 and he's proving to Israel that there they are saying all oh, this Christianity this salvation by faith a weird new doctrine and Paul's saying rubbish it's in Genesis 
right through the Old Testament, right up through Zechariah, Habakkuk, the whole lot, it's there. And he's saying to the Jews, you've got no excuse, it's what God taught us all the time. And he's simply saying that what happened with Abraham and all the Old Testament saints, how did they get saved? They believed on the one who was to come. They had faith in the Messiah who was coming and they were saved by faith. Now go back to Galatians chapter 3. I'm deliberately flicking from Romans to Galatians because I'm giving you parallel passages and I'm showing you how Paul outlines his arguments. After this, I think you'll understand Romans and certainly Galatians a lot better. Now go to Galatians 3 and I'll show you where it is in Galatians that Paul shows this. And it's a passage that confuses some people. I hope I can take away that confusion. Galatians 3, and we'll start reading from verse 15. To give a human example, brethren, no one annuls even a man's will or adds to it once it has been ratified. So what Paul is saying, once the declaration has been legally made, that's it. You don't tamper with it, right? Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, which is Christ. That's not the bit I want to get into. This is the bit. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance is by the law, it's no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now Paul says, look, I'm proving to you Jews that salvation always has been of faith. And it's because Abraham was given the promises of salvation simply by believing. Now he was given those promises 430 years, the teaching of salvation by faith was clarified to Abraham 430 years before Moses came along. Now what Paul is saying, God's promise to Abraham cannot be undone by the law because God's promises forever stand. So therefore he's saying that God's promises of salvation by faith to Abraham were ratified once and for all 430 years before the law ever came and so really what Paul's saying to all the Jews and that he's saying sorry lads game set and match and he left them rather like a dog between four trees they didn't have a leg to stand on <laughs> so, so where we've come all right in this is to show absolutely and conclusively that salvation, that justification, is by nothing that any of us do. It's purely by the work of the Lord, by what Jesus has done, and we reap the benefits of what he has done through faith, believing in Jesus. So therefore we've seen that justification is by faith in Jesus. But having got there, there's something else that we've immediately got to tackle. And it's this. Alright, salvation is by faith. Great. So what is faith? Because I tell you, faith isn't what some people think it is. Now, we have seen from the writings of Paul, using the arguments of Abraham, that Abraham was justified by faith. 
Alright? Now we have a problem. Turn to James' epistle and chapter 2. And this is the problem that we've now got to confront. James chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 18 to 24. Alright? Remember, we have read, Paul has proved that salvation is by faith. James 2.18 But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one? You do well. He's being sarcastic now. You believe that God's one? I'll bully for you. Even the demons believe and shudder. He's being rude to them. It works. It really does. Jesus was rude to people on occasions, alright? Being facetious. Do you want to be shown, you foolish fellow, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? Oh dear! But we've just spent eight hours <laughs> proving, eight hours of Bible teaching proving that salvation is by faith and now we turn to James and it says that salvation is by works. Now what does this mean? Now what we've got to see is that this passage is here in order to bring out what faith really is and not necessarily what faith some people think it is. Now the point is this, we've got to see the difference between true biblical faith and what you might call believism. Now part of the problem is that in the Greek the word for faith and the word for believe is the same, pistis. But even though the Greek word is the same, there's a difference as James demonstrates. He says, you believe in Jesus? Well great, Satan believes in Jesus and boy does Satan believe in Jesus. He wishes he didn't have to but there's no Satan believes in Jesus. So the point is that a mental assignation or a mental recognition of the facts to believe the facts, purely as facts, is not biblical faith. Now we're going to see that biblical faith means that you do indeed believe the facts, of course you do, but biblical faith is more than that. Now then, so I've got to show you what biblical faith is. Well the word pistis, what it means in its connotation of faith as opposed to purely believing something as a fact is this, a conviction acted upon. That's the thrust of the word, a conviction acted upon. Now let me therefore define biblical faith for you then I'm going to show you it in a clear way from the Bible so you can see it. Biblical faith is belief in the facts plus a pledge of fidelity. Now remember faith, faithfulness and faithfulness is a pledge of fidelity. So biblical faith is belief plus a pledge of fidelity which means in the context of faith in Jesus surrender and obedience to God's will. Now that is what faith is. Now let me give you an example, alright, of faith and believing. Now, I believed in Belinda. I'll show you why I chose this example in a few minutes. I believed in Belinda. But it wasn't just a question of I believed that she existed, that I met her and I intellectually acknowledged because I had very little choice that she was there.
What I'm saying is, I believed in Belinda and I pledged my life to her and we got married. Now can you see that pledge of fidelity? That is the way in which I believed in Belinda. Now that is the biblical meaning of believing in Jesus. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is how you believe on him. That is the faith through which you're saved. Now this picture of, of kind of marriage that I picked is a really good one and I'll show you why. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and a quick look at verse, a verse that we'll be back to later on in the series. But Ephesians chapter 1 and starting at verse 13. In him you also who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now what Paul's saying, the minute you believed, you received, you were born again of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit was given to you, amongst other things, to be a guarantee. Now in the Greek, that word guarantee is arabon. Now, in modern Greek, arabona, which is the same word, slightly changed, arabon, but in modern Greek, arabona is an engagement ring. Now, can you see this biblical picture? Faith or believing in Jesus, the picture that's there intrinsically in the scriptures, is of a belief in the partner that you're going to marry. It's not just believing the facts of, it's commitment. There's a pledge of fidelity. Now then, also, when you marry somebody, and this is kind of the picture, it's like marrying G. I I mean the church is the bride of Christ, it means faithfulness. But when you marry someone, you <coughs> forsake all others. It's in the service, isn't it? Forsaking all others. Now, let me give you one of the natty little acronyms that I like. Faith. F-A-I-T-H. Remember, when you marry someone, you forsake all others. F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all I trust him. Now that is what biblical faith is. Now let me show you this. Go to Genesis 15. I'm actually going to read a verse. We've already seen where Paul uses it. Well I've got to give you some biblical examples of this so that you really see that it's there. And in Genesis 15 and read verse 6. This is speaking about Abraham. And he, Abraham, and he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now go to chapter 22 and verse 18. We've read, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now in 22 verse 18, and this is God speaking to Abraham, and by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. Now can you see that the biblical phrase Abraham believed means the same as Abraham obeyed. Can you see faith issues in obedience? Another one, go to Galatians chapter 3. Back to Galatians again. You'll certainly know where Galatians and Romans are by the end of tonight. Galatians 3 verse 5. Now listen to this. This is Paul talking. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul says, look, 
How is it that you've got the Holy Spirit? It's because you've heard with faith. Now, go to Acts 5. Acts 5 and verse 32. Remember, we've just seen the Bible says that you receive the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith. And in Acts 5 verse 32, the early church preached this. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, can you see the importance of this? That biblically, to believe equals to obey. They're interchangeable terms. And I've just got to show you one more from the lips of Jesus himself. And in John 3, verse 36, we've seen this already in the course, but John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life. Now, can you see? Put, I mean, Jesus doesn't say, if you believe in the Son, you'll have eternal life, but if you don't believe, you won't. He says, if you believe, you will have eternal life, but if you don't obey, you won't. Can you see? This belief is obedience. That's how it manifests itself. Hence, when James writes in his epistle, he's not writing against the idea of salvation by faith. Of course he's not. He's not saying you get saved by the works of the law, by what you do. But he's saying you get saved by faith. He says, but come on, let's be a bit real about this. Don't go around saying that you have biblical faith given by the Holy Spirit if you're not living in a way that is following Jesus. So the point is, it's not just a question of putting your hand up, I believe. That's not what it is. Belief in Jesus is a real pledge of fidelity to him. It doesn't mean that Christians don't later on get in a mess. It doesn't mean that some fall away. Of course they do. But the point is that what I'm saying is that biblical faith means at least obedience to whatever extent. Not perfect obedience at all. But simply believing the facts is not what biblical faith is. It's obedience to Jesus. Now then, let me show you, again from the lips of Jesus, this contrast between the law and faith. Remember, we're saying you can either do it by works of the law or by the works of the Lord. And we're saying it's by faith, accepting what Jesus has done as a free gift. But Jesus gives us a marvellous contrast in Luke 18 by telling a story about two people. Luke 18 and verse 9. Now then, uh, I've got Matthew 18 open, let's get the right gospel, Luke 18 and verse 9. Right, and he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let's, let's look at the Pharisee first. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God I thank thee that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, let's have a look at this. Because here is a man who is being justified by the works of the law. Alright? He's a Pharisee. 
Now, what is the first thing that strikes you about this Pharisee? He's full of pride and self-righteousness. Now, can you see he's kidding if he thinks he's saved? Can you see that the, the evil, the evil, when God has declared all men sinners, the evil that men should fly in the face of God, calling him a liar and saying, I'm not. It's dreadfully serious. And don't talk about all those nice people out there. They do a lot of good, don't they? If they do a lot of good, praise the Lord. I'm glad they do a lot of good. But what's the worst thing? What is the worst sin? It's calling God a liar. And that's what they're all doing. They're not nice people at all. They're rebel sinners heading for the lake of fire, just like we were. All this talk about, it's not, it's pride, it's self-righteousness, it's absolutely terrible. Now then, what does this Pharisee do? Well, the Bible says, Jesus said he prayed with himself. Alright? Not that he prayed to God, he thought he was praying to God, but he wasn't. He was praying to himself. He wasn't heard by God. Now the truth of religious people, and I mean I'm talking about a lot of Christian religious people, all in inverted commas. The problem is that when they are in prayer, they're talking to themselves. Can you see? They're talking to themselves. If they think that they're going to, event when they die, if they think they're going to be okay with God because they've led a good life, I mean they are talking to themselves. Now then, let me tell you, what is prayer? Prayer is talking to your God. Alright, I pray to Jesus, I talk to my God. So, if you've got a religion person, he's praying, Jesus says he's praying to himself, God isn't hearing him. So, if he's praying to himself, who is his God? And this is the terrible thing about salvation by works and religion. A religious person is their own God. Can you see that? They're praying to themselves. When they pray, they talk to themselves. I saw a film once about this guy who um, went mad and he thought he was Jesus, you see. And when asked about it, he, he, he sort of said, well, every, he said, every time I prayed, I found that I was talking to myself. <laughs> you see, I mean, you know, it was a film. It wasn't a real true thing. But can you see, they're talking to themselves. They have become their own gods. And when this guy said grace, it was for what I am about to receive, my, I make myself truly thankful. Can you see, the point is they're praying to themselves. God's not hearing them. They are their own gods. And it's a terrible thing. Now let's look at the tax collector. Now the tax collectors were the lowest of the low. Alright? Because the tax collectors were Jews who sold out and served the Romans. And they exploited their own people. They were traitors. They were turncoats. They were considered the lowest of the low. Now, look at how this tax, uh, this tax collector prays. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now then, this in the Greek, when he prays, be merciful, it's the verb form of hilasterion. It's hilaskomai. And you'll remember that hilasterion is the Greek word that I showed you for propitiation. And what this sinner is saying, this tax collector, he's saying, I cannot satisfy your righteous and just demands. You do it for me. Can you see? This tax collector knows he's a sinner. And he's saying to the Lord, I can't, but you can. And that is what faith is. Therefore, 
what Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Can you see that? Because he's realizing that he can't deal with his sin problem and he's saying, Lord, you deal with my sin problem. And that is what faith is. He's admitting his need of justification from what God has done rather than anything he can do. And this is why Jesus can't help self-righteous people. This is why they're all going to burn in the lake of fire. Because they're healthy, they think they're healthy, so they don't need a doctor. Jesus can't help self-righteous people, they don't need him. But when you realise you're a sinner, suddenly you qualify. So Galatians 2.21, just to end this section, Paul says, if, if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. And that shows us once and for all that we're justified by faith in Jesus, not by what we do, because if we can be justified by what we do, then Jesus was being a little bit silly in dying, because it wasn't necessary. And that shows us 100%, okay, that justification is by faith. Now, so pull it all together, I want to give you a couple of pictures here. One from the New Testament, one from the Old Testament. Turn to Romans 8. To Romans 8. You'll see why we have to go to Romans 8 now, verse 1. When Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation, and in the Greek, whether it's whether it's translated judgment, condemnation, damnation, it's all the same Greek word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, in Romans 1 to 7, Paul has worked out everything. What we've done in the last seven or eight studies is kind of what Paul was working out in the first part of Romans. So in Romans chapter 8, he's kind of got where I've got tonight, okay? He's worked it all out, and he says there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, what Paul does now to demonstrate this is he uses a courtroom scene. Now, in what we've been through, propitiation, expiation, it's all been rather technical, rather legal. But it needs to be, and I'll show you why. You see, the point is that what we've got to understand is that the problem between us and God was a legal problem. It was to do with his justice. And when justice is contravened, you immediately have a legal problem on your hands. Now, therefore, we're going to look at the last few verses of Romans 8, but in order for it to make sense, let me kind of paint the picture for you all right we're gonna see a courtroom scene we're gonna see the accused as it were standing before the judge and we're gonna see a prosecuting counsel now we've got to understand what happens in a law court there are three distinct phases all right first of all is you're charged all right the charges are read okay the second thing in a law court that happens is that assuming you're found guilty and you're condemned. And because you've been found guilty and condemned, sentence is passed. And the third thing that then happens is that the sentence is carried out and you're separated from society. Alright? Now, what we've got to see is this. How does this regards to this how does this relate to our sin problem? Well, it's this, okay. First of all, we stand before God, the charges are read, okay? 
The charges are read. Now we're talking about the position now of all those who haven't believed on Jesus, as it were in the law court standing before God on, on trial. The charges are read. What is the charge? Well, the charge is not believing in Jesus. That is what the world is now charged with. It's not charged with sin anymore, all right? Because Jesus took the sin, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The charge now is not believing in Jesus. Go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 18. When Jesus says this, he's talking about himself the son of god he who believes in him is not condemned he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of god so the charges laid against the world now is not believing in jesus still in john's gospel go to chapter 16 and verse 8 and 9 talking about the coming of the holy spirit and when he comes, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. So the world stands in the court before God, okay? And the charge is not believing in Jesus. Stage two is they're found guilty and they are condemned. And because they're condemned in the court, the sentence is passed. So what is the sentence? John chapter 8 verse 24 I told you that you would die in your sins for you will die in your sins unless you believe I am he so the sentence is that they will die in an unjustified state before God they will die in their sins and then the third separation the sentence is carried out Matthew chapter 25 and the area that we're covering very quickly now in this verse we will be covering in much greater detail later on in the series but Matthew 25 verse 41 when Jesus says and this is the un, um, unbelievers Matthew's 25 then he will say to those at his left hand depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels and then if you go down to 46 and they will go away into eternal punishment now then that is the sentence carried out on unbelievers now then that was the position that you and I were in before we believed now back in Romans 8 because Paul is writing to people who have believed okay who have believed in Jesus let's go through it what then verse 31 and you'll see that this is a courtroom scene what shall we say to this if God is for us who, who is against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will he not also give us all things with him who shall bring any charge against God's elect what was the charge not believing in Jesus well we believe in Jesus the charges have been dropped because we're not guilty all right the second aspect, if you're found guilty, you're condemned. It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Well, if you're not guilty of the crime, you're not going to be condemned. Can you see that? And if you're not condemned, the sentence, which is separation from society in the slammer, 
Alright? What is the sentence before we believed? Well, it was eternal separation from God. Now go down into verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it's a hypothetical question. Because Paul goes through everything he can possibly think of. And says, that can't. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Now, can you see that therefore, because we've believed, our status in this courtroom is that we're not guilty. Because we're not guilty, no one can carry any sentence out on us. There are no charges to answer for, and the punishment will never be exacted on us. Can you see this is the culminations in Romans 8? We walk out of the court absolutely scot-free because we're innocent. We're justified. Decao, we are declared to be righteous. And when an innocent man has been declared not guilty by the jury, the judge says, let him go free. And that is the ultimate dictum of the law. He is a free man, he's righteous. And that is the situation that you and I are in, you see. There is no separation for us from God now or in eternity. Go to John 5 and verse 24. John 5 and verse 24. We've seen what happens to unbelievers. Now let's see what happens to us as believers. John 5 and verse 24. When Jesus says this. He says, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You see, it's by faith. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now that was your status the minute you believed on Jesus. And when we lead people to Jesus, the minute they believe, this is their status. They are totally not guilty before God. There is no condemnation for those which are in Christ Jesus. Right, that's the New Testament one, Zechariah. Let's see it in the Old Testament. Because as you must have gathered by now, I mean, if, if I've done anything in, in these four or five years I've been coming here, it must surely be to have demonstrated that the Old Testament and the New Testament teach exactly the same things. So go to Zechariah, and in Zechariah chapter 3. This is good, this, because now we get the prosecuting counsel. Right? Where is it? Zechariah chapter 3. It's near the end of the Old Testament. Right near the end of the Old Testament. Then he showed me Joshua. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. This isn't Joshua who led them into the promised land. This is a different one. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with rich apparel. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now Joshua, the high priest here, is a believer, alright, standing before God. Now let's sort out the personnel, okay? First of all, Joshua, he's a believer, alright? So, number one. Now the prosecuting counsel, Satan, 
is the prosecuting counsel. Alright, he's the one here to accuse. And in the Greek, the devil, the Greek word for the devil is diabolos, and it means the accuser or the slanderer. And indeed, the Bible teaches that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So the prosecuting counsel is Satan. Alright? Now then, who is the judge? It's very important. Who is the judge? I'll read it to you. I'm going to read you John 5:22. Don't bother to stand there. But who is the judge? This is Jesus speaking. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, Jesus is the judge in this court. All right? Now then, we've got the defendant, we've got the prosecuting counsel, we've got the judge, but we need to know who the defence lawyer is, okay? Now in 1 John 2, chapter 1, and don't bother to turn to it, I'll read it to you. In 1 John 2, and in verse 1, we read this. My little children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now here, Jesus is our advocate. Now, the Greek word for advocate is parakletos, and it's exactly the same Greek word that Jesus used that the Holy Spirit would be a comforter, alright? So, advocate, comforter are the same thing. Jesus is our advocate, the Holy Spirit is our comforter. But the word parakletos, it means one who comes alongside, but it's a Greek, it's a legal term, and it means a defence lawyer, alright? So now we've sorted out the personnel in the court. The believer is the defendant. The prosecuting counsel is Satan. The judge is Jesus. Our defence lawyer is Jesus. Now the point is that this court is heavily biased in our favour. It's a rigged court. And it's rigged because our defence lawyer is the judge. You see? Now then, we've got to see what happens in this court of law now, you see. The first thing that happens, I mean, here's Satan in court. The believer is hauled up before God. Satan, the prosecuting counsel, has his case written out in front of him. He is going to conclusively prove to the jury beyond all shadow of reasonable doubt that the bloke standing there is a sinner and that because God is holy he can't let him in. So then Satan rises, the prosecuting counsel rises to speak and to make his case. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you O Satan. Now the very first thing that happens in this court is that the defence lawyer, the prosecuting lawyer, stands up to make his case against us and the judge kicks him out of the court. Alright? Before he can open his mouth, the judge kicks the prosecuting lawyer out of the court. So before the court has even sat properly, the the case for the prosecution has been totally 100% dismissed. Alright? Because of that, the charges are pushed by the prosecuting counsel. Well, he's been kicked out of court. So there are no charges left. Uh, read. Now, if there are no charges read, a court doesn't have anything to do. So Jesus stands up as a defence lawyer and he says, We've won, we've won the case. 
you see, because the prosecuting counsel has been kicked out. He's now lying on the pavement outside the court. <coughs> Jesus, having said that, dashes up into where the judge sits, puts his wig on, he says, right, I'm the judge, court adjourned, case dismissed, you see. And what happens now is that the defendant who's standing there, and yes, indeed, he's got filthy garments on, because he's a sinner, and you and I are sinners. He's got filthy garments on. And in the Hebrew word for filthy in filthy garment, do you know what it is? It's so, T-S-O, and it means excrement. Now that's our sin. And Josh has all these filthy rags on. And do you know what happens? The judge rips them all off him and puts a beautiful new outfit on him. Alright? So he's there absolutely pristine. Alright? Because Joshua, because he's a believer, his sins are covered, but he has the righteousness of Jesus. So his filthy rags come off and he gets the clothes, the rich apparel the righteousness of Jesus. And do you remember that story I told a few weeks ago about the student who killed someone with a knife and he fled and the police chased him. He had blood all over his clothes. And a friend, he went to a friend and his friend swapped clothes with him. And the police were doing a house to house. They took the innocent one away because he had clothes covered in blood and he didn't speak in his own defence. And he went to the electric chair. But later on, his friend, who was the really guilty one, had a letter that he'd written before he was executed. And it just said, I've worn your clothes, now you wear mine. And this is what happens to Joshua. Jesus has worn our sinful clothes. And Jesus says, you can wear my clothes of righteousness. But remember, in this court, the judge is the defence lawyer, alright? And I heard a lovely story once about this guy who was in court. And it wasn't a, a, an offence that was punishable by going to prison, but it was a fine, all right? And so the judge, he was found guilty, and the judge said, I, I order you to pay 100 quid or whatever. But this judge knew that this bloke couldn't afford the 100 quid. And if you're fined in a court, if you can't pay it, you have to go to jail anyway. Now, what happened was that the judge, he passed sentence, all right? And he says, you've got to pay £100 or you have to go to jail. Now, after he passed sentence, he took his wig off, he took his robes off, and he walked out the back, because the judge has a door, he comes, he walks, you know, he vanished. A few minutes later, he walked in the court from the public entrance, just dressed in his civvies, and he offered to pay the fine. Can you see? Now, that's exactly what has happened. The judge, in the case against us, has paid the penalty for it. He's worn our clothes, and he offers us the chance to wear his. So can you see how totally complete the death of Jesus is? That because we have believed, and this is true of anyone who gets converted, there is absolutely and positively no condemnation because they're in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God. Bearing that in mind, go back to the verse we started with and let's read Romans chapter 5, 1 and 2 again and let it really sink in. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, 
we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Now can you see how final that is? We have peace with God because of what Jesus has done and because we have accepted it as a free gift. Now do you remember when we started the series? I said that we were going to be looking or we were going to be answering two questions and in answering those two questions we were going to see three facts. Now the two questions were this why is man separated from God and how has this problem been overcome? They were the two questions and the three facts that I said we were going to see were this firstly man can do nothing about the problem whatsoever second fact God has already done everything needed in order to overcome the problem and third fact he's done it through Jesus now over the last months we have totally answered those two questions and over the last months we have fully demonstrated those three facts from the Word of God. Now, having done that, many people would shut their Bibles and say, right, now we've finished our series on salvation. Have we finished? No one. The last months, culminating in tonight, all I've done is prepared the introduction. Next time, we're going to start looking, really, at what salvation is. But you'll see what I mean next, next time. We've only just begun, and believe me, the best is yet to come. So, next time, come along, you'll see what I mean. We'll boldly go where no man has gone before. <coughs>